This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, why are you wearing fatigues? Because I'm tired. <laughs> oh, hey, doom! Boy, what a way to open up a podcast. No, it's just weird. You're like walking around here thinking you're all like, you're asking me to call you like El Comandante. I, I, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't actually speak uh, Latin. First of all, no one speaks Latin because... <laughs> oh man. How long have we recorded? I'm already in trouble here. Well, you know what won't make us in trouble? Talking about Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's going to be pleasant. And uh, I'm sure we'll focus entirely on the movie we're about to watch and not on his moral character at all. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do on record that Dave doesn't think that anything you do in your personal life should affect anything. There should be no repercussions. No repercussions. <laughs> You're speaking like we've already recorded this episode. I know, it's weird. <laughs> on a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault. But he's not going to face an apocalypse alone. Especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm Bananas. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. And now we're on our way back to Earth. The Machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the movie... Bananas. And now, Woody Allen, with a few words about his new film. What's the title of your movie, Woody? Bananas? Yes, Bananas. Uh, the name of the movie is, is uh, Bananas. Bananas, Bananas. What part do you play in the movie? I play the part of uh, Fielding Mellish, <laughs> who is a, uh, a tester of products at a small company in New York. We can show you how to turn it out. We can show you how you can save money on a cost basis. And you think we'll sell? How is it, Mullis? Can you hear the music clearly? You should be a great seller in California. And who, through a circuitous turn of events... So long, suckers! ...finds himself leader of a Latin American country. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons of Green Girl, YYC, and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Dave, I think we need to do this. If we're going to be talking about a movie that features Woody Allen and his like uh, journey down to Latin America, I don't think that we are equipped necessarily to have well, like, the best yeah. of discussions about that. Do you not agree? No, I, I'm pretty adept at any conversation, but you, you oh, are definitely, sure. yeah, you're going to need all the help you can get. So who are you calling well, today? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to bring on a guest here. I'm going to bring up my old like rotary phone here up on the spaceship. We need to bring on to our call a guest we've had on here previously. Let's get uh, Jose Maria Luna on the phone. Jose? Hi. Kyle? Oh, oh good. You answered. Yeah. Good <laughs> How could I not? You don't have my number blocked. That's really nice. I'm always available for potential podcast gigs. Mm. <laughs> good. Mm. Well, that's good to know. Here's, here's the task. 
do you have the time to sit and watch the movie Bananas and then talk about it? Oh, you mean like Gwen Stefani's Bananas? Like the music Correct. video. We have, we have pivoted our podcast to talk only about music videos. Might be more popular. Yeah, might be more popular. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, no, it's the Woody Allen 1971 feature. Oh, yeah. that Bananas. <laughs> that Bananas. Okay. Um, I, I mean, people, I'm hoping, know you from both like your Twitter exposés on different subjects. But also, I need to push people. If people don't know that you have a YouTube channel, they should really go and check out your latest video called Decolonizing Adventure, A Cinematic Road to El Dorado. At least for me, great analysis of like all the times or most of the times El Dorado has been mentioned in a movie and uh, trying to discover the city of gold. Thank you. I I, mm -hmm. I was not expecting a plug this early on. Um, <laughs> right. Yes. I, How long did it take you to make that video? <laughs> like from start to finish, it was like a like around four months. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. Um, it was. <laughs> How long does it take to make our YouTube videos, Dave? Well, um, you know, it's quality content. It's about oh, sure. uh, five days. You mm -hmm. know what, Kyle? Why don't you do it then? <laughs> yeah, let me, okay, right, exactly. No, that's that's a, the appropriate response. Well, just to let people know, but like, what is the video about, Jose? Um, okay, so basically, I love the adventure genre. I've always loved it. But mm -hmm. I've always noticed that they're not very attentive to, like, you know, history. They just always make stuff up. And one that keeps popping up is El Dorado as, like, the quintessential, like, quest. That's the city of gold. And as a Colombian, I am very familiar with the origins of that myth, but most people aren't. So I was like, what if I just like, I don't know. I guess I was just annoyed that everyone loves Road to El Dorado, even though I can't stand it. And I was like... The, the cartoon, the animated yeah. movie from the 90s. Yeah, the yeah. DreamWorks movie. I was like, what if I ruin it for everyone? And, <laughs> and the video grew from there, you know. Spice. Oh, good. This is... A I was going to say, this is like the best thing to make stuff sometimes is spite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was like... Chef Jose on every episode. We could use more spite. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to be... not. I try not to let spite be my brand, but you know what? Mm -hmm. Sometimes somebody has to do it. Spite is my only brand. You know, it, it is a thing. I, I can't think of any good examples right now, but every so often... I'll run into like either a new movie or like a movie being reevaluated and people are like, yeah, it's like so good. It's so great. I'm like, but it's not. <laughs> I know that's personal taste and stuff like that. But sometimes when have just you like, not liked a movie, Kyle? No, there's been plenty of movies I haven't liked. <laughs> Name one. <laughs> okay, moving on. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like that meme that's a good, like uh, and on Twitter that's like gays show you a movie telling you it's the best ever and it has like a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> it's kind of true and it's yeah. like every so often everyone is like time to talk about how this movie has always been great and you're like mm. <laughs> has it, that one has it though her <laughs> yeah this is the one that we're gonna like die on the hill on yeah um okay i think we need to do that with bananas well yeah talking about great attention to historical precedent let's talk about bananas <laughs> uh, there's two things i think we need to uh I don't know, uh, get into here right at the very beginning, which is our history with Woody Allen and then the history that we have with this film. 
Let's open up the can of worms about Woody Allen here first. So, Jose, what is your history with Woody Allen? So, we met one summer of 83. Oh, I was walking around great. New York and, uh, no, I actually uh, don't. He was playing his clarinet. Is it clarinet? I thought it was like a saxophone. I think it is, yeah. He plays some woodwind instrument, I don't know. <laughs> but I love that idea that, like, if you live in New York long enough, you'll just run into Woody Allen. It's like, that's the you, best yes. way to get me not to move to New York. What if I'm having a good day and suddenly I run into Woody Allen? What about Alec Baldwin? Apparently, Alec Baldwin just walks around the street. Oh, and yeah. And he seems like actually a crazy person. Well, he, you'll well, probably, yeah, he kind of yells at people. Yeah, you'll probably cut, off the, cut this off, but my, my cousin's wife babysits for, like, this kid's in Alec Baldwin's building. And so, she always runs Whoa. into him. And apparently, he's just, like, very weird. Of course, he's oh, weird. I, I mean... <laughs> This is Look coming out, this is going to be two weeks ago that this news broke, but he's probably not having the greatest of times right oh, now yeah. after what happened on the film set yesterday. And I feel kind of bad because, like, I mean, I know Alec Baldwin's not nice, but also... You're not going to elaborate on that or you're just going to yes, leave it? so what happened? There was a <laughs> the filming fuck? of a movie, Rust, in New Mexico. The movie okay. was called Rust. And uh, there was a scene where he was supposed to shoot again that from what i've understood was accidentally put a live round is actually what the mistake Classic. was this time wow uh, and he shot and killed the dop that's a real so, thing it's a real thing helena hutchins was her name and then the director joel susa is in like critical condition in a hospital right now because they were behind the camera and he sh shot the the gun and it and it actually killed her yeah yes. it's it's like a horrible tragedy it's like a that's like the kind yeah. of like horror stories you hear in film school and it's it's always weird. Like you hear all these stories, but you never think that it's actually like it's going to get that bad. When, whenever I hear about stories like that, I wonder why is there even a live round on set? Well, there's yeah, there, there's there has to be more investigation on that because I don't want to like yeah. talk out of turn because we don't really know the whole story right so now. Weird. But like the, even with Alec Baldwin, who I'm not like the biggest fan of and he's kind of a home, well, not even kind of he is a homophobe, probably does not deserve to accidentally kill someone on yeah. set. Um, but Woody Allen. Yes, Woody Allen. <laughs> um, yeah, tell me about your history with Woody Allen. So, I, I don't remember which one was the first Woody Allen movie that I watched, but I I feel like I had always been familiar with him. Like, I had always mm -hmm. been hearing of him. But I think, like, the first one that, like, I watched that really made an impression on me was Midnight in Paris. I like that Yeah. One. It's a great movie. Um, yeah, it's great. It was, I remember... <laughs> I think we rented it from Blockbuster. Blockbuster still exists Whoa. then. That must have been like the last couple of years of Blockbuster. Yeah, and I think over here in Colombia, it lasted a little bit longer than in like North America. Mm. But I just remember uh, watching it with my parents. Uh, it was like kind of like, oh, we're watching Woody Allen's new movie. It was like, sure. And I loved it. Maybe because I'm very nostalgic as a person. The movie really spoke to me. And also I just mm -hmm. love like... 20th century history. I love like, you know, like that kind of historical fan fiction uh, was right, just you know, really interesting. And I just really loved it. And like the movie soon became like kind of important to me. And then I started like actually going back and watching other Woody Allen movies and being like, oh, I should like check them out for real. And some of them I liked, uh, others I was very ambivalent about. Like Annie Hall is great. And Manhattan, I remember being like, oh, Manhattan was okay. But it's one of those movies that when people are like, separate the art from the artist, and then the art is Manhattan, 
you're like, hmm, yeah, I don't know if I can separate this. It's still a guy going this. after a teenager in that movie. Like, it's that's such a weird movie. Yeah, right? It's like... <laughs> on theme. Yeah. yeah. Maybe Woody Allen has done questionable things with underage women, but, like, you can still enjoy his movies. You know, the <laughs> movies where he hits on underage women. <laughs> right. So, uh, talking about, like, that separating the art from the artist, like, I don't know, where do you fall on that question? Because it's something that I know that I've struggled with. And kind of go back and forth with a lot, but like, yeah, where do you where do you end up on that? Um, I'm kind of permissive in some ways, especially with older movies, mostly because the people behind them are dead. But right. sometimes it's like, oh, I don't want to give my money to I don't know J.K. Rowling. I never really liked Harry Potter, so right. that's not a problem. All the fan letters can go to Jose. I don't need to sift through those. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potterheads don't listen to our podcast. But see, so it's like kind of like a thing of like, am I monetarily supporting this person by consuming their art? Am I uh, enabling them in any way? Those are kind of questions Mm -hmm. that I like to ask myself. But also, I feel like, I don't know, we can also just be critical of the stuff we consume if the stuff itself is questionable. Yeah, like, like where I've, I think, settled on this is kind of that question. The unfortunate part is that uh, the machine, for some reason, didn't load up this movie. So I did have to rent it on iTunes. So uh, I oh, I feel a little bit bad about that because it's like, ugh, I don't really want to monetarily support this guy because that is where a lot of that money is going to go to. My reign of evil continues. Whereas, yeah, like an older movie, like if I'm watching a Hitchcock movie, for instance, right, who is also... A pretty big jerk if you read up on how he treated the women on his ca- on his film sets. At the very least, he's dead. He's not going to get any of this money, so I don't really care at that point. I think you mean how he treated the cattle in his sets. Is that what I said? The no, cattle? it's just that he's, he used to say that. He used to say that actors were right. cattle. Yes, yes, yes. Just a That's little... Right. Just right. a little... Uh, just a little nugget yeah. of information there for you. Um, the, the other thing, too, is I think that it is quote unquote like it's it's fine for like a problematic person for me to like something that they've created at the same time i can't be like well because they created this thing that i like that absolves them of all this bad stuff that they did over here i think there has to be a little bit of nuance both ways in in that discussion yeah social media does not lend itself to nuance a lot of times so it's hard to like kind of try and communicate that properly the first woody allen movie i saw was annie hall and this was, I tell this story all the time, but basically I'm of an age where there was still <laughs> this thing called Columbia House where you could actually like get DVD or it wasn't, it was VHS at the time, VHS to be sent out to you. So you like subscribe to it because I was collecting the AFI's 100 best movies of all time, supposedly, according to them. And it was on there. So that was like the first Woody Allen movie that I saw. But just like another person that we've talked about a lot here this year. Uh, which is Clint Eastwood, I find him and Woody align in a bit. It's like, you are so prolific with the amount of stuff that you make over so many years. And and a vast of your, a vast number of your work is considered great or at least significant to have like inspired a bunch of other people. That's so hard. If you become a film fan or a cinephile of any kind, uh, not to at least be aware of who Woody Allen is. So I, I did the same thing. I tried to see a few of his other stuff. Um, I did not see a lot of his work because basically in the late 90s, the first kind of scandal of Woody Allen came out where he you know, started dating his uh, uh, adopted daughter. And then, of course, rumors kept going on from there about him doing other awful things to his adopted children. M- My Cross the Bear is the last movie 
of his. I actually went and saw. No, that's a lie. I was gonna say I think the, I was gonna say Scoop was the last movie I went and saw of his in theaters. That's right. I paid money to see Scoop. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. But no. But I I also like Midnight in Paris. I think Blue Jasmine, for instance, is one of Kate Blanchett's best performances. And it's like it's unfortunately in a Woody Allen movie. So there's this weird thing where I I don't go out of my way anymore to like watch a lot of Woody Allen stuff but like if it was presented to me or I was asked my opinion on a podcast yes I would probably watch it and and deliver that but that's where I'm at with Woody Allen I find I liked him for a while and then I'm tried to like (laughs) push him away a little bit here in recent years and from trusted sources at least his last five or six have not been all that good so it doesn't feel like I'm missing out on anything recently oh my god Uh, he makes so many movies that it's kind of like hard to keep up yeah Blue Jasmine was like eight movies yeah. ago now for him or something like that. I like, remember seeing that came Blue Jasmine in, in theaters. I think I watched Cafe Society in theaters, but I didn't pay for it. I like, wow. Okay. I like, I was curious about it because I love movies that take place in old Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I think I went to see another movie and then I snuck into Cafe Society afterward. Um, if the authorities are listening, the it's a, you can't arrest Jose anymore. <laughs> Statue of Limitations is a lie. Exactly. And I'm not in the United States anymore, so... I don't, think, I don't think sneaking into a movie theater... Does Columbia have extradition things with the, the I'm US? I'm sure we do. Probably we not. definitely have extradition, but probably not for theater, uh, you know, right. sneaking. Fraud. Fraud. Yeah. <laughs> That's a better one. Ticket fraud, yeah. Uh, Dave, uh, past with Woody Allen. History of, with, with Woody Allen. Yeah, I don't know. I grew up, uh, and he's a big name, eponymous with arty filmmaking. He's... Uh, busy a lot like Stephen King he seems to have a new novel come out every year and right. and as we've uh, learned uh, with all of these directors I mean this is human nature of course there's going to be a tailing off period where, when you lose sort of any semblance of connection with society so I'm not surprised that his recent movies suck but um you know in the 80s and early 90s you know Woody Allen embodied intellectual comedy for better or for worse if it right. wanted to talk about satire and drama but and then uh, New Yorkness he was a huge sort of a proponent for the New York culture street culture I was just listening to both I mean yes uh, I think when the first scandal hit you know I'm in I think I'm still in high school and that's a that's a big controversy and yeah. uh, it, you know I think, again, I don't want to pick a side, but, you know, it's not his adopted daughter. <laughs> it was Mia Farrow's adopted daughter. Gotcha. But, so, he was, uh, okay. Mia Farrow's Still fucking adopted nuts daughter, too. where he was well, the father if figure. you look at Mia Farrow, she's a fucking crazy person, too. So, I, I think everybody <laughs> in Hollywood, I, so, so, when listening to you, the one thing I wanted to bring up, I mean, Woody Allen's clearly, if not a pedophile, he's got a thing, because this is a theme in his whole life with young women. Even his previous marriages and relationships before Mia Farrow, he, he likes them around that 16, 17-year-old age. Uh, it's pretty weird, uh, which is fine, uh, because that has nothing to do with me. Is it fine? But we, well, we have this problem in culture right now where we need to make heroes of people who are good at one thing. Right. So, we look at a film director who makes great films, and we think this person has to become a moral institution and my hero and I have to pray and worship him or her. There's a problem with that. Listening to you both, I mean, I, I kind of agree, you know, I also have this internal rhetoric, internal rhetoric where uh, I feel like if I go and see a film or uh, rent a movie that somebody's benefit is such a capitalist idea. They're benefit, they're winning because they got my money. But on the flip side, if we go the other way, no art gets made. It's the stand-up comedies railing against cancel culture. 
So if we get too upset about everything, there's no more humor left. What are we going to actually talk about? This podcast couldn't exist. We have to apologize for everything. We couldn't do 1971. There isn't a single monster, right? Like right. name a film we've done that there isn't a monster on set. Monster it's on so set fucking or like weird, right? just things that don't hold up anymore. Like we keep bringing back the, the treatment of animals in 1971 and wow. holy shit. Like the amount the, of death we have watched of animals on screen is like, well, this wouldn't be allowed anymore. I mean, we're not doing a Roman Polanski film, but no. look at the rampant alcohol abuse, drug abuse, weird death shit, you know, feet, women, men getting abused, children. It's not, this is actually sadly kind of par for the course in Hollywood. And I think, I don't know, this is too broad an assumption, but you have to be kind of an extreme person to mm. uh, put anything out. I mean, people who live in the middle of the road tend not to uh, take a big swing and put a film, you know, in a theater. Mm -hmm. And we joke a lot about the Tom Hanks and the Steven Spielberg. There's no way these people live normal lives, right? They're just better at holding it together. If Woody Allen put out another Midnight in Paris, would I go see it? Probably, you know? Does that make me agree that he's a good person? No, he's clearly a fucking crazy animal. Growing up, did I think all Woody Allen movies were good? No, a lot of them suck. And uh, we're going to talk about one. Right. But, um, you know, there's ones that are pretty funny as well. Woody Allen's a weird guy. I think like Lin-Manuel Miranda, it's better when he's not in his own things. Yeah, I said <laughs> it. Yes, I, well, that's, <laughs> you keep coming back to that point, Dave. Thank you for bringing that up in this episode. I, I agree with Woody Allen though. I actually think I'd like, Annie Hall might be the outlier for me. I do actually tend to like the stuff he's not in, in a role in within his movies that usually better. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a good writer. Uh, and a very good director. I mean, Manhattan is, I think, more often applauded for its cinematography. And, and this movie has like four or five shots that you can see. I don't know if he's his own DP. I didn't actually look at no. the background, but he's got, he and whoever produces the film have a great photographic eye occasionally. And a scene will pop up and you'll be like, whoa. And then he'll do some close-up slapstick shit. And you're like, ah, what a hack. Especially if he has the budget. Like yeah, everyone always talks about like his dialogue, which is, yeah, like at his best, it's really good. But also his movies can also be very pretty. Yes. Right. Well, well, that's the thing. It's like, not that I have not seen it, but because, you know, uh, as we're recording this, Dune is going to become like the biggest movie that people are going to be talking about. So for some reason, I've been getting a lot of uh, Timothy Chalamet put into my uh, timeline. It's um, your algorithm because you've probably maybe, been Googling maybe. pictures of him for a few years well, now. Dave, yeah. stop stealing my computer. <laughs> he was in a Woody Allen movie here a couple of years ago, which I can't remember uh, what it's called. Rainy, Rainy Day in New York. Rainy Day in, um, in New York yeah. or whatever. Uh, anyways, they posted this scene and like the scene wasn't doing much for me as far as like the characters or anything. But yeah, I was just mentioning like the photograph, like how he's actually using the camera to push in, pull out and really use like the I don't know, design of the room to its effectiveness. I'm like, oh, see. This is what I actually miss a lot in most modern movies is actually using the camera <laughs> to like tell a story rather than a cut, 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 cut to like hide deficiencies that are happening. Yeah. I won't go into that whole diatribe again. But. And I think it's it's interesting that his scripts are obviously kind of very tight. Uh, I mean, they, they, they feel kind of effort, not effortless, they, but they feel kind of very, they flow very well. But you can tell mm -hmm. that the writing is just very tight. Like it's not so, so loose as it sounds. And it's weird. It's it's interesting how he always manages to keep that without just keeping like the same two shot of them talking. Like, and this is this is an interesting like uh, I guess period we'll call it uh, of of Woody Allen because 
I would say his first, oh gosh, five, six, seven movies are very slapstick heavy. Like it's very like joke, 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 joke. And then you get into the Annie Hall in Manhattans where it's like, yes, there's comedic elements in those movies, but really it's like a drama. There, there could be more funny or more dramatic, but it, he never came back to this like slapstick-ish, slapstick type of humor. Yeah, which is like interesting. I wonder what changed. Other people were better at it, I think. Possibly. You know? Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, that makes sense. He wanted to have the wit and then slapstick became a joke, right? It's just I think Mel pure Brooks took over the, the Jewish slapstick yeah, mantle. Right. Yeah, I was going to bring right. that up. Like, yeah. And they worked together, actually, with uh, with Sid Caesar, who we keep bringing up, Dave, it seems, this season, because all the writers went off to do like amazing different things. But yeah, I think Mel Brooks kind of always stayed in that like comedy 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 first and plot like i don't really care it's just Except the comedy his, aspects uh, that we care his grand film Spaceballs, which was yeah, his master magnum opus but like when mel brooks is on i love what he's doing and maybe yeah alan looked at them like well, yeah maybe i can do something different or like i'm not gonna reach that height who knows i think this podcast should have much more of me hitting you both in the face comedy he's got a different aptitude you know? yeah he, he's uh he's an intel i mean Again, this is not to be an apologist, but he's clearly an intellectual dude, the way he writes and how he wants to convey ideas. So, But he also makes write... fun of intellectuals a lot too. Like that's like well, one that's... of his favorite punching bags. Which I think is yeah. like what makes some of his stuff work. It's kind of like mm -hmm. if it was just intellectual, it would be kind of annoying. But since he too knows how to like yeah. make fun of that too, it's kind of like, oh, he's in mm -hmm. on the joke. It doesn't always work. Right. Sometimes it's like... <laughs> It's like, oh, I feel like you're just doing this to save face. But <laughs> right. um, yeah, I, when it works, it works. Yeah, to, to that point, I was going to actually wait until later, but I'm going to bring up this quote. Do you have either of you heard the quote that Orson Welles did about Woody Allen? No. Orson Welles hated him, hated his guts. I'm just going to not even mince words here. This is the full quote that people will bring out about Orson Welles on Woody Allen. And Orson Welles did this all the time. He loved tearing down other directors because he had to be the center of attention all the time. But <laughs> he did make one good movie. Uh, I think he actually made three great movies. He made more than that one. Discussion later. So he says, I hate Woody Allen physically. I dislike that kind of man. He has the Chaplin disease. That particular combination of arrogance and timidity sets my teeth on edge. Like all people with timid personalities, his arrogance is unlimited. Anybody who speaks quietly and shrivels up in company is unbelievably arrogant. He acts shy, but he loves himself. A very tense situation. It's people like me who have to carry on and pretend to be modest. To me, it's the most embarrassing thing in the world. A man who presents himself at his worst to get laughs in order to free himself from his hangups. Everything he does on the screen is therapeutic. That is the full quote that Orson Welles, which I mean, I love the fact that he calls himself modest, but regardless. Of yeah, fact, like arrogantly wow. modest. Yeah. The donkey, like yeah. we say in Spanish, the donkey talking about ears. <laughs> um, I had to, I had to try so hard not to laugh while you were reading that because I was like I'm gonna uh, no, blow that's... off the audio in my microphone. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> but I mean, I there's just that's just a, such a way to open up a sentence, right? Like I hate Woody Allen physically. <laughs> that's what always kills me. I had read that. I think you shared it recently yeah. or something, or I saw it on Twitter. Probably. Um, but it just it's just so funny because Orson Welles, if anything, he was great at that. <laughs> That's like cutting people yeah, down, talking shit. Exactly, and like 
Especially if you imagine it in his voice. It's just, oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> wish, I wish I could do Orson Welles' voice. Um, just think of like the you brain need, from Animaniacs. You need a thicker chest. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, the, the thing about this is like, yeah, the persona of Woody Allen is sometimes I think how he was able to hide, quote unquote, hide for so long. It's like, oh, he's like the little nebbish guy who's like always scared and stuff like that. But like that is an act he is putting on at the same time. It's kind of uh, interesting how often he in his movies, he makes himself very like sexually unthreatening. Yeah. Oh, well, threatening, but uh, unsatisfied. <laughs> sure. I mean, he's he's uh, he's a stalker in all his films. I mean, there's, he's neurotically obsessed with sex. I don't think mm -hmm. uh, that's hidden. I do like the end of Orson Welles' quote, which is, I mean, this is probably true for all art, but his in particular is publicly, uh, it's therapy for himself. And mm -hmm. if there's one thing that is clear, whether it's intentional or not, all of the drama and problems of his personal life are on the screen. He's not hiding from anything. You know, he casts himself as somebody who's obsessed with young women, who's obsessed with sex, who can't handle his own fame or money, who's like hiding from shit and always has to keep a secret. And he still has the goal not, to like he, play coy about it. Yeah. Right, right, right. You wrote this, dude. Like, this is... <laughs> it's been here for like 40 years. You've been telling us that you do this stuff. He's like, oh. see, if Woody Allen's movies are therapy... It's like the bad kind of therapy where it's just you talking without with a, with like zero self-reflection. Yes. It's just kind of right, it's right, kind right. Of or, like people think that therapy is just complaining to someone else about your problems. That's the kind of therapy that his movies are. Oh yeah, he's he's asking the therapist like why is it everybody else's fault? Yeah, exactly. Now you, you know what I you know what I think it's like it's like you get on the couch and proverbially proverbially and then you ugh, and then you tell your therapist something and then they give you 5 bucks. And they're like, keep going. It's like, oh, well, okay, this other thing. Here's another five bucks. Oh, shit. Well, I've got this other thing that's going. Here's another five bucks. They don't give you any feedback. They just give you more money. I mean, mm -hmm. how can you not get sicker, right? Uh, right. And this is kind of the problem with uh, capitalism, pal. We're going to be okay. political. No, and, which is, and like, it's, it's interesting <laughs> because like Midnight in Paris is one of his rare movies that does have some self-reflection. And I feel like that's what makes it so kind of melancholic. Well, a lot of his movies mm -hmm. aren't. It's kind of like mm. it's kind of like um, oh, maybe I am the problem. <laughs> just maybe. And yeah. he like, but like he never really answers the question. It's just kind of like putting it yeah. out there. No, it's the children who are exactly. Wrong. That's yeah. what I was. That was that's what I was thinking of. And it's kind of like, and then he was like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like a rant. Yeah, like his, his little thing. He's, um, okay, so uh, out of the three of us, um, I know that Dave and I have not seen this movie before. Uh, Jose, have you seen Bananas before? Um, I, I kind of did. I don't count that. I they showed it at my film at my high school's uh, like day like weekly film club. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah, I mean. I, I, I follow my like my film teacher in high school who was in charge of uh, of that on Letterboxd and he gave this like mm -hmm. four and a half stars. So I guess he just really likes wow. it. Um, and mm -hmm. I went, I went to see four it, stars. but it was like a day that I was exhausted. And I think like I was, I didn't quite fall asleep watching it, but I think I like drifted in and out enough that like the movie was kind of just like a very vague you're taking my review away from me, Jose. I mean, this is, I've been waiting. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so. Mr. Fall Asleep over here. 
<laughs> so I, for all intents of purpose and purposes, I haven't really watched it. All right. Well, this will be great. Um, we'll all watch this with fresh eyes and have something hopefully unique to say about this movie. Uh, so Dave and I, we're going to go off. Uh, you just stay here, actually, Jose, and enjoy the snacks we brought, I guess. But Dave and I are going to go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about the movie Bananas. Perfect. Why do you sound different? Wait, I, I don't know. I, uh, spores? What, what, what else would cause oh, no. a quick hoarseness that will likely Let's, go away in the next three minutes? We should probably maybe quarantine once we get back to Earth for, for, a, few, for a few weeks. Then we're not bringing the space spores back onto Earth. I can't taste anything, Kyle. Don't say that on air. Jesus Christ. Everyone's going to be scared. They're going to die up here. I've heard that you can get it over podcasts now. You have to wear a mask on your ears. And by it, we of course mean talent. <laughs> Entertainment. Of course, I should tell you here in this ad read segment that uh, Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Pretty proud. Locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. You know what I love more than entertainment, Dave? Um, Cheesecake? Pies. Pie Junkie is pretty good. Oh, yes. If we were in Calgary, Pie Junkie is a great place to go to. Yeah. No, I was thinking about the bank. I love <laughs> banks. Is that a pie right, shop? Or, right? <laughs> I haven't heard of it yet, but I try it out. Yeah, yeah I could yeah. eat a pie right now. No, I'm talking about ATB, Dave. Oh, Specifically, right. they also have a podcast, apparently, called The Future Of. And so uh, here is what they want me to say. They say, at ATB, we make banking work for you by offering both experts and cons sorry i'm reading the wrong thing that's okay i'm not sure they're listening either <clears throat> they want this is what they want me to say it's hosted by todd hirsch you know todd he's atb financials vice president and chief economist the future of podcast has launched its third season and by saying has launched we mean nine months ago but still it has its third season out and by connecting with industry leaders to uncover what's on the horizon for the things that mean the most to you the future of podcast promises to give you insights to help navigate what is often an uncertain future mm -hmm. you can explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change but embrace the opportunity that it creates Subscribe to the future of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. And connect with us at atb.com slash the future of. People can't see it, but how'd you like my little hand gestures? It's good. I think <laughs> it'll pick up in the mic, uh, mm -hmm. on the mic. So if I go to Chinook and I go to the Apple Store, I just fill out a card to subscribe to the... Uh... Correct, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, every if you want to subscribe to something on Apple Podcasts, it has to go on to Tim Cook's desk first. <laughs> and he either gives it like bunk, he like stamps it with approval. Stamp it in blood. Yeah. Siri, stamp for approval. Um yeah, what what do I have to talk about? We uh, as members of the Alberta Podcast Network often need to tell you about other podcasts on the network that are made in Alberta. Did that work? Close enough. Yeah. And today we're gonna to talk about one of our partner our sibling, I did this last time, or the one, no, not last time, but I may do this bit again. In the future, maybe. In the future. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about quantum kickflip. Is that, I need you to explain this for me, or they can explain <laughs> it for themselves. Yes. Huh. As, as we're walking over here into this other room to record our ad reads, because we don't want to do that in the same room as our guests, because it makes us feel it's weird. embarrassing, yeah. 
this is an actual play podcast, Dave. Okay. This is exciting. Do you know what actual play means? Uh, you get to play, actually? Yeah, no. so an actual play <laughs> podcast is just like another name for role-playing. It's a role-playing podcast. Okay. And no, not a sexual role-playing podcast, mm, Dave. Get your mind out of the gutter. Mm. It is using the Slug Blaster rules. And uh, basically, they make this up, right? You have your DM who's running the game, and you have your characters, a cast of characters who are role-playing specific characters, and uh, making up a story each and every week. I'm excited to actually check this out. All right, let's listen to them talk about it. And all I can think about is how good at that we'd be, judging by how well we improv on this podcast. Yes, and I agree with you, Dave. Acting. (laughs) Roll to see if I agree with you, Dave. (laughs) In the small prairie town of Hillview. In the center of town, Hillview's single traffic light shifts from red to green which has no effect whatsoever as Main Street is, as usual, completely devoid of traffic. Bored teenagers use their modified hoverboards to sneak into other dimensions. An abandoned cityscape lives half buried in the sand. Welcome to the multiverse. It's dangerous. The entire right side of her body looks like uh, just a glitched out mess. It's stupid. And then I immediately uh, turn around and punch him. It's got parent groups in a panic. Just don't do it, okay? Hugs, not slugs. All right. Thank you. (laughs) And it's the coolest thing ever. This is Slug Blaster. Well, your funeral and ours, I guess. And then Angus points and fires. There's an explosion. A burst of slime goes flying. Your reign of terror has come to an end. It it kind of scrambles and glitches out. And you can see that this this is like a smoking crater where your ray gun hit. (laughs) Sick. (laughs) Quantum Kickflip. A Slug Blaster actual play podcast, part of the Alberta Podcast Network. All right. Well, Dave, I mean, you thought you were going to fall asleep. That was a brisk 80 minutes, I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully. Thankfully, short, short and to the point. Yeah. Jose, why don't you tell us your kind of brief overview of your feelings on the movie Bananas? Well, I think Gwen Stefani was right. This shit is Bananas. (laughs) Um, I was waiting for that song to like queue up, but I guess we're just like 40 years too late. It would have been a great needle drop. That's right. <laughs> well, I I think it's an interesting movie. I I found some of it very funny, but I feel like it's also, it's like satire, right? It's like, oh, we're going yeah. to satirize Latin American revolution politics. <laughs> but like well, something that I noticed is that not a lot of the humor came from that. Like, a lot mm-hmm. of the jokes were, just didn't really have much to do with that. They were just, like, jokes that could have worked in, like, any setting. Kind of like when they, like, vaguely changed, like, a Saturday Night Live sketch to just reuse the same script in a different situation. Yeah. That's kind of how it felt. Like, it was like, oh, this could have worked in, like, any Woody Allen movie. The setting is not really informing the humor at all, which is not great for a satire. But in the mm-hmm. few moments when, like, it was actually kind of, like, good satire, I enjoyed it for the most part. It was okay. I, I mean, I think we might all be aligned with that feeling where it's like, yeah, it's, it's okay. Like, like, I didn't love this movie. I didn't hate this movie either. I have to be honest. Like, there are some deeply funny things that I found. I know also that a few of the jokes are just, they're just up my alley of what I find really funny as far as, like, setup and, and payoff. I'll just say one right at the upfront. The one that I laughed at the hardest is something that if any movie does this, I always laugh, which is when I'm going to use a very high uh, profile word or like a highfalutin word here, which is like 
when non-diegetic sound becomes diegetic. So he's like sitting there lonely on his bed and the heart music is playing and he opens up the door and it's their actual heart <laughs> is there playing. Kills me every but, time. I love that kind of stuff. I think it's so funny. That also got a big laugh out of me. I was like, I, yeah. it was, I was so unexpected that I was just like... That's what it is. It's like, that was the, it was just unexpected for me. Like, oh, that's where we're going here. I agree with you so much about like, why does this even go to Latin America? Like, really? Like, I don't think there's anything much here as far as like deep satire that requires it. In fact, for the first half to two thirds, I was like, really, this just seems like an excuse to have funny bits happen. Like, there doesn't seem to be any connective, like actual plot, really, that's happening. Not that you necessarily need to, I guess, but it just like it got to the point where like you're like the characters aren't even like staying true to like their character. Sometimes they're just going into another scene to do another funny thing. Whereas if you take a movie that might be something similar to that, like Airplane, for instance, which I love. I love Airplane, which is just like gag, 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 gag over and over and over again. Uh, but at least each person is still a character who does something that makes sense to their character inside of that. I also personally would have cut out the entire love story in this movie because I don't think it adds anything to it. it for me, it was a mixed bag. I, it, because it made me laugh quite a few times, it's not like a complete like burn the film negative sort of thing, but it's also not something that I'm super enthusiastic about either. But Dave, how about you? What did you think? Yeah, I don't know. I never LOL'd. I got a couple of chortles. I admitted some chortling. There are some, I mean, there's some bits. I actually, I don't know, maybe I watched too much Monty Python and, and Mel Brooks. Like when the harpist came out of the closet, I, was, I actually sighed. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> the harpist came out of the closet? Good for her. When, when they open yeah. up the closet. And I was just like, ah, oh, all right. My favorite probably bit was the uh, crucifix parallel parking fight. Uh, I mm. thought that was pretty funny just because of the urban nature of how I grown up. I have had mm. yelling matches about parking spaces before. And then but, you crucified them. So. Well, there's uh, there's that. Uh, when you talk about the, the love story is annoying. And I, I wonder, you know, we asked the question, why did this take place in a fictional Central American country? I wonder if this whole thing... It's like very South American. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, South American. Yeah. Uh, I, clearly, I wasn't even paying that much attention. Was I? <laughs> You're talking to two people who think Portugal is in South America. I wonder if this whole thing is built by him trying to pick up some activist woman who is giving him shit about not being involved enough. And then he built this story as a, I mean, it just feels like that. It just feels like, I mean, he doesn't engage in any actual political commentary because he's not invested in the politics at all. And I think maybe the reason why this love story, A, we've talked about that he's got a sexual problem, but maybe this whole thing comes from the other side. Maybe Could be. it feels like, like that a little bit. I mean, it's a weird, weird thing to push. The other kind of weird subtext the actress who is the love interest, Louise this Lasser, do you know who she is? Uh, his ex-wife? Yeah. Well, it is his ex-wife. Yeah. <laughs> which, like, ex-wife when they made this movie, ex-wife, yeah. which makes it super awkward, yeah. I think. She looks awkward. Right? <laughs> she didn't look like she was enjoying it that much, other than insulting Can you him, blame which her? I think might right. have been the most fun. Which is also <laughs> a, another, I thought, really funny joke, <laughs> which is like, uh, I forget how it's phrased. Like, yeah, I just don't think you're like, yeah, good, there's something like, intellectually, missing, right? emotionally, physically. It's like, yeah, but what else? <laughs> is it, that's what he asked her, <laughs> right? So, like that kind of stuff is, I think, funny and like really well thought out. But again, agree. I don't think that the love story adds much to the to the narrative well, itself. I mean, just the end of the movie, he 
gets a chance of redemption by having gone on this adventure with the same girl who rejected him for not being adventurous enough. So I feel like that's a thing. I just have this as a note that popped up, but talking about his ability to write satirical jokes, the uh, New Testament cigarettes is probably the only oh, other thing that I thought was great. hilarious. That was also great. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty But good. anyway, sorry, Jose, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just... Uh, I was thinking about how like the premise of guy starts dating like this activist and she's like oh you're not involved enough so he like ends up like in a revolution like in a revolution yeah (laughs) i think that's pretty funny but like my problem with it is that like like what i think doesn't let it work the whole joke is that he's kind of like this very indifferent centrist oh well he doesn't really care that much about the problems that his girlfriend cares about and so it's like, oh, okay, so like the comedy is going to be and like, you know, him being involved in this and kind of like, like what's making it, what's going to make it appealing is that he's going to kind of like have like that arc of like, either he's going to get very frustrated with it or he's going to learn. But the movie just had kind of has him be right. Like hmm. he just kind of like, he started as like this, like the kind of like voice of reason centrist in this conflict. And then throughout like the whole thing that just keeps up. And in the end, like the movie is like, yeah, you know, he was right. Yeah. The, the, I think the hard thing really about this is that from interviews that I've read from the time, like uh, Woody Allen was not interested in actually being political. Like he was not setting out to have like a political point of view within this movie, which I think actually does hurt it overall, in my opinion. But uh, what, what I was actually confronted with was the fact that there seems to be jokes at the expense of yes the revolutionaries in here but i thought that there was like such a great opportunity to also poke fun at america at the same time which is just like left open and never really explored wow, the whole lot. He, really... he makes a tv culture he has that great scene with the cia he's like who are we fighting yeah. for? Well, we don't know who, so we're going to have half our army fight <laughs> right, that one right, right. Said, right, so much i was about to bring that one up that one was a great joke yeah, I mean, he, he tries it. You know, I mean, to Jose's point, to yours, Kyle, you know, you have a movie that's written, directed, and stars one ego egoist. It's not going to be an opportunity for anybody to do any deep self-reflection. Right. It's one of the reasons why I suspect, you know, we kind of jibe at some of our film, uh, some of the films we watch. You need a good editor. <laughs> you need other hands on deck. You need someone who's going to look at Woody in this case and just be like, you know, this is kind of twisting too far to the right or to the left or up or down or whatever, can we reel it or add another line? I mean, maybe this is the problem with his entire body of work, if one were to phrase it that way, is uh, at the end of the day, they're just kind of like diaries to himself. And it's why I don't like watching him in his own movies. Uh, Midnight in Paris is great because he's not in it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Literally my first note, my first note in my in when I watch the movie is oh no, Woody's playing himself. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Um, I mean, the the talk about the editor is actually something that really calls out to me. Except for like very, very rare circumstances. One of my actual biggest pet peeves, Dave, of movies that I don't like is when actors mug to the camera. For some reason, it just it always puts me off. I can't stand it. So there's a lot of that in this movie. And there's actually that whole scene of him trying to like prop up his friends like on the car and stuff like that anyways it goes on way too long it feels like they're just like wasting time and there's a couple other scenes like that too where it's like there's just music playing and he's wandering around and he's not doing really much of anything and it's like yeah they were really trying to 
get this to that 80 minutes. They were really trying to stretch this because they didn't feel they could release a 68 minute film. Well, it's, it's kind of wild because like he doesn't leave New York until like the 25 minute mark or something. Right. And I was like, oh, this satire about like this, like the, the premise of the satire takes up like a very weird percentage of the runtime. I wasn't even sure he was going to go. I thought the whole opening bit, frankly, was just to make fun of Howard Cosell and the uh, American sports culture where everything is commentated on, mm -hmm. which we call I Twitter I now, have to but... say I really kind of like that opening bit too, but maybe it's because I like Howard Cosell. But... No, it plays okay. And I think at least for people of our generation who were on the tail end of television actually looking like that, I think it reads really well. But people today wouldn't give a fuck about that whole scene. It's not quick no. enough. There's not enough visual... I mean, we saw what was that shit movie you made me watch, He's All That, where they do all the right. fucking pop-ups of Twitter and Instagram. That's the world we live in today, right? <laughs> and this old world with a guy with a giant microphone that's larger than I his know. fucking face. And he's just like, over to you. How are, you know, it's, people don't do that anymore. I'm, I'm getting old. I, I realize that. But it, we've been confronted this with a few times. Like, I, I just kind of love that aesthetic and I know no one probably does in a modern context anymore of like the old like sports reporters and stuff like that but it also reminds me of like Dick Cavett show stuff which I love watching that stuff. Uh, but it's like, that's like from the 70s dude. Yeah. That, like, you weren't no even alive had, yet. I was not even alive in the <laughs> 70s that is correct. But like it is uh, I don't know that that type of feeling that type of um, emotion that Brad's like yeah let's actually sit down and have a conversation or like let's investigate this uh, is gone probably never to return. Oh, yeah, but I, I can, I can hope. I can hope. We're, we're doing it, Kyle. We're just not very <laughs> yeah. famous. Yeah. We don't. We, don't have we a are spot the on Howard Cosell television. and Dick Cavett of podcasting. Yes. <laughs> you should put that, that. That should be the blurb on the. We should. We should make that. <laughs> Here. <laughs> That's our second shirt idea, Dave. Right after Walter Matthau sucks because you have a huge hate boner on for Walter Matthau. Well, I didn't actually hate him that much, but I do now. Because we have a hater on YouTube. So what are you going to do? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think this movie, you know, it's like a short essay and it's corny mm. and childish. And there are parts that are kind of funny. You can see that he has wit, but it's also hard to look at him. I know that's so judgmental and surface level, but I just, I can't stand his personage when he's in these films. And you I might even don't say, like Woody Allen physically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, I don't necessarily want to give Orson Welles too much credit because he's clearly an insane person as well. <laughs> right, but, yeah. Uh, he's dead on the money with so much of that commentary. I don't want to say, for example, that Woody Allen never deserved to be famous. He was a great writer. He was a great director. He made a lot of uh, monumental films. But whenever I watch a Woody Allen movie, even pre-controversy, uh, he's so obnoxious and I just, I can't. I can't get into it. I find it, I find it obnoxious. I don't find it funny. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. I mean, we've seen, and I was commenting, I was texting Kyle on the couch. I mean, he's obsessed with, I was saying Buster Keaton, not Charlie Chaplin, but like he's obsessed with silent movie slapstick, you know, with the doorknob and all the fucking, mm -hmm. you know, he plays the music instead of having dialogue. And I, I don't know, he just doesn't have the charisma for it, frankly. Right. You put somebody who's a silent movie actor, we, I just told Kyle, I just watched uh, Sunset Boulevard and watching old Buster Keaton show up in that poker table and you're like there's something magnetic this guy does not have to say a single word yeah his eyes tell you everything yeah right? <laughs> he can tell you everything with just his face and that's just not how woody allen is built he's nice right. uh, yeah, which is like leads me to the age-old question is buster yeah. keaton hot or is his face just that <laughs> is, is his face just interesting 
He was the original Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> it's it's hard. Well, it's it's hard because I think I'll, I'll speak for myself. I think young Buster Keaton is very attractive. Yeah, <laughs> I'll go on record as saying I was, that. I was watching like last year. I watched like Steamboat Bill Jr. and I was like, yeah, and like I kept being like, is he hot? I I, I, I can't <laughs> like, tell. What's going on? Here? I was just so intrigued by his face <laughs> in that movie that I was like, huh? I've never considered. This. I love that it's so. It's not a statement. He can it's ride like, my steamboat anytime. I don't yeah. trust myself. There's something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone can be attractive in black and white. All right. Well, let's do some backstory here then. So the movie Bananas was released on April 28th, 1971. Currently, it has a 7.0 on IMDb. It has a 67 on Metacritic. And over on Rotten Tomatoes, from 35 critics, it has 83%. And, and 10,000 plus users give it 74%. It is available on DVD or Blu-ray. If you want to pick that up, you can also buy or rent it on iTunes. You can also rent it off of YouTube. Its budget was $2 million. It would make 11.8, which would be about $79 million adjusted for inflation. So it didn't do bad. It did, it did really great yeah. return on investment. Probably why he was able to then make another movie every year for like the next 50 years. <laughs> um, and then its plot description is when a bumbling New Yorker is dumped by his activist girlfriend, he travels to a tiny Latin American nation and becomes involved in its latest rebellion. It stars Woody Allen as Fielding Mellish. Louise Lasser as Nancy and Carlos Montalban as General Emilio M. Vargas. We've brought up Woody Allen probably uh, enough. We don't have to delve into any more of him. Are either of you familiar with Louise Lasser outside of this movie? Um, no. She looked so familiar, but I think it's just that Woody Allen has a type. <laughs> probably. Yeah, that's, that's mostly true. That's great. Because uh, <laughs> I have never seen this TV show. But she was Mary Hartman in the TV show Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which was produced by Norman Lear during his like heyday of like having the eight top ten shows on primetime television, like All in the Family, The Jeffersons, um, Maude, etc. You were et born too late, Kyle. I you know. were obsessed with an era of entertainment that you had no experience no. with. Okay, I have a movie for you, Kyle. No. What's that? I have this movie for you in that case. You know, it has Owen Wilson and, and he goes back <laughs> to yeah, Paris yeah. at midnight. It's <laughs> never heard of it. I, I only bring this up because it was one of, I think it predates soap, but it, it was basically, it was pretending to be a soap opera. So it aired like four nights out of the week. Like it made a ton oh, of wow. episodes and, and she was well known for that. I know her, though, so I've never seen that show. But I have watched the entire first season of Saturday Night Live when it released on DVD okay. back in the day. And she has a very infamous hosting gig that she does on the second last episode of the first season where it caused her to be banned from the show. So there's a moment halfway through the show where she comes out and just does this like weird like stream of consciousness talking about like her insecurities. And I'm talking like... In my memory, it goes on for like 10 minutes. Like it goes on and on and on. And then she's barely seen for the rest of the episode. <laughs> like it's a really, it's weird. It's such a weird episode. If you can, if you can track it down. Don't you get that in this film though? She's like that in this movie. Yeah, no, that, that's yeah. her thing. Like that yeah. is part of what her persona was, huh, which is why like there's been such conflicting reports in recent years, because back at the time it was considered like that was real. Like it really happened banned from the show, blah, blah, blah. But apparently conflicting reports, if you ask people now who were there at the time, it's like, 
no, that's not the case. Like that was written into the script, this type of thing. But then another writer says, no, it was not written into the script. She totally went rogue and we didn't want to have her back. And like Chevy Chase hated her because she was a woman. So <laughs> that's why Chevy Chase hates her. And she did not like Chevy Chase Sounds at all right. either. So it was kind of like mutually like hated each other. So anyways, that's the only context I know of Louise Lasser is this really weird appearance on Saturday Night Live. Wow. So check it out. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere that you can check it out. Uh, the, these are the, this is the cross I have to bear, Dave. I have these stupid references in my head that only I know about. <laughs> and I cannot tell anything to anyone it's because okay. it's like, oh, you're not going to understand what the hell I'm talking Listen, about. Listen, I, I have a great therapeutic process for you. You write, direct, <laughs> and star in your own films, and you'll be fine. It'll, it'll, it'll work out great for you. I'm sure it will. This was written by Woody Allen and Mickey Rose, directed by Woody Allen. We've kind of, kind of talked a little bit about this being the beginning of Woody Allen's directorial uh, career. At least for films, he always wanted to be in comedy, starting to write jokes at the age of 15. He would actually send those jokes to various Broadway writers to see if they'd be interested in buying them, which sounds wild, but that was a thing that actually happened back in the day. I'm going to start doing that with my tweets. <laughs> yeah, the center's off. We pay for these. <laughs> Here I am giving away material for free. Instead of tweeting something, I'll just... Dear Lynn, here are some tweets I made. Please buy them. There's a career. It's called social media influencer. All right. People pay for that. The slight tangent is that I I know this because of um, a bunch of the uh, writers, original writers on The Simpsons, for instance, used to have these same gigs where they'd write for like, um, they'd write jokes for Rodney Dangerfield. And I was like, you could make a living out of doing that. Anyways, uh, his break would come when one of those writers, Abe Burroughs, loved them. Uh, and he was the co-author of a little show called Guys and Dolls. So he's kind of a big deal at the time. He sent those jokes to a few people, but the most notable one was Sid Caesar. And this brought him to Hollywood where he would write jokes for Sid, but also scripts for like the Ed Sullivan show and the early years for The Tonight Show. The, I'm guessing, Steve Allen era, like when it first started. But it was really that Sid Caesar connection that's important because while he did not work on your show of shows, his follow up, Sid Caesar's follow up to that was this thing called like Caesar's Hour, or the Sid Caesar Hour, which had many of the same writers, Larry Gelbart, Neil Simon, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, and Woody Allen. Like just think about that writer's room for just a moment. That's wild to me. They probably hate each other. Probably. <laughs> he would take those jokes. Uh, so he would take that joke writing ability and start doing stand up. And at least from his contemporaries at the time, was considered an all time great of that form. There's this comedy historian, Gerald Nachman, who Nachman, who wrote that he helped turn stand up into biting, brutally honest, satirical commentary on the cultural and psychological tenor of the times. Wow. That is what he wrote. That's too much schooling. War- yeah. Those those surely are words put together. <laughs> those, those are English <laughs> words that were put into a sense. Again, I don't know how much that is like retconning of the of the time. Uh, it is true that he was successful at doing stand up, but he only did it for a little bit of time. Like he did he was not like an extensive stand up comedian because uh, he would have been working in conjunction with like Nichols and May and all those people at the same time. So from stand up, he'd go into playwriting where he started making fun of intellectuals. That's where his love of doing that started. It was in plays. And uh, then he would transfer into film. So his very first movie, I'm going to put this in quotes. His first movie was What's New Pussycat in, in 1965. So he helps write the screenplay. And he does have a co-directing credit on it, but uh, Dave, do you have any idea what what's new pussy or what's up pussy? What's new pussycat is? Um, I don't know. I've heard the name, but uh, nothing. It is a Japanese film 
that he just made a dubbing for, but he made up what they were saying. He actually didn't know what the real actors were saying in this Japanese movie. He just took okay. it, wrote new lines, and then had his friends come in and talk over top of it. High comedy, folks. High comedy. He would then go on after that. In 1967, he would also be in Casino Royale, the first Casino Royale, but that was just the spoof of James Bond. So that's like him getting into like movies. It was 69 where he writes, directs, and stars and Take the Money and Run, which is his real true directorial debut, uh, it, which gets mostly positive reviews. But because of his body of work, I find it's largely forgotten nowadays, I would say. Hold on, Kyle. I'm going to correct you, buddy. Oh, what's going on? What's New Pussycat is different than What's Up, Tiger Lily. Oh my God. Did I write the wrong thing? Yes. I did do the wrong thing. I was like, right. What's New Pussycat's a real movie? It is. And it's got yeah, yeah. nearly every famous person yeah, it was from 1965. Like, I was, you were telling that story and I was like, oh, I thought that was the movie with Warren Beatty where he like, like You're got right. in a fight You're with totally Woody right. Allen. But I was like- Yeah, mm-hmm. What's New Pussycat's got Peter Sellers, Peter O'Toole, Romy Schneider, Ca- Cappuccini- Ursula Andress is in this movie. What the heck, man? Tom Jones sings a Burt Baccarat song. This is which not... is what's new, Pussycat, because that's what the song is. That's why I know the song, right? Let me let me just Tom do Jones. "What's Up, Tiger" a few times, and I can insert this with uh, editing magic. I think we should just leave it as it is. What do you think, Jose? What? I mean, <laughs> you're fallible. You're a human being, Kyle. You're no, I can never be, be shown to be wrong, yeah. Dave. Yes, it was "What's Up, Tiger Lily," but that's not the. Thanks movie. for correcting me in the in but, the moment, but, though. Oh, so wait, so did Woody Allen also work on that one? Yeah. What? Yeah, he was in What's Up Pussy, or what? sorry, What's New Pussycat? He was in? He says he wrote the screenplay. Oh, he wrote the screenplay for that. Sorry, I just had to Wikipedia because you were talking about it. I was like, I've never heard sure. of this weird Japanese movie, but the Japanese one is real. Yep. No, that is oh, a real thing. Yeah. So he does Take the Money and Run, follows it up now with Bananas, which is his third film, although really his second. Uh, and this is still part of what we were talking about before his like funny period, before you move on to the drama later on. Let the record state that Kyle did air quotes when he said funny. <laughs> it's funny period. Um, Mickey Rose, the co-writer on this, helped write a couple of his other movies, specifically Take the Money and Run. But this will be the last film that he worked with Woody Allen on. He, he actually also started with the Sid Caesar show, interestingly enough, and he would go on to have like this extensive career in television. I would say some of his highlights are the Dean Martin show, Love American Style, which is what uh, brought Happy Days eventually because it was a spinoff of that show. All in the Family, The Odd Couple, Charlie's Angels, and then The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. The story is, even though I don't think it's credited this way, is from two different source materials. One is Don Quixote USA, which was this novel that was released. And Woody Allen basically took most of the fake place names from that story and put it into this movie. And then the other one is Viva Vargas, which is a short story written by Woody Allen, which is basically the same premise, which is a dummy gets caught up in the revolution. So he take, takes these two things, puts them together. And uh, as much as I did some research, I don't know anything about the filming, how it came together, what the set was like, anything like that. It's just like, because it was successful, it kicked off the fact that he's still around 50 years later making stuff and abusing young girls. I think, so here we well, go. I think he looked it up wow. and um, I think they shot in, other than New York, obviously, they shot in like Peru and in... Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico yeah. too. Uh, which I was like, I looked up because I was so like, I was like, where is this? It just kept looking like different places. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's why they shot part in South America and part in the Caribbean. 
Yeah, it's it's always fun when you actually do know places and stuff like that, where it's like you're 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 in New York City, but you just took a left and are now in downtown Toronto. <laughs> so that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I hard. think I think living in LA five years was like a schooling and like watching movies and being like, hey, that's LA. Hey, that's a place. That's not. That's not. Ex- that happens occasionally in uh for like some westerns and things that get filmed around here in calgary because there's a lot of stuff that gets filmed here hey i've hiked there hey i know that mountain (laughs) and when we watch the last of us on hbo next year we'll see all of downtown calgary being ripped up because that's what they're using right now for all the post-apocalyptic scenes oh must be a very nice city that's what it looks like feels (laughs) post-apocalyptic great at least it's not edmonton Am I right? There's, I mean, a few other things I think to to pick up on here. I mean, Dave, I think you, we've kind of brought up here, like what has worked, what hasn't worked. Was there a favorite joke you had, Dave? Because I don't know if you actually brought any of that up. I mean, favorite's a hard one, but I do, mm-hmm. I wrote down some because I didn't want to be too curmudgeonly. There were actually a couple of notes. I mean, I, I brought up the crucifixion parallel parking thing. The New Testament cigarettes, probably my favorite, if anything. Just from the photography point, there's a scene where the couple's talking and he's cut the frame with a huge overhang of trees and they're kind of mm. peeking around the side. There's a part where during his stay with the uh, rebels, they shoot through his glasses to see mm. who he's talking to. There's like little pieces of cinematography and camera work that are... Uh, glimpses of his cable, uh, his or his DPs or whoever comes up with this stuff. There's little glimpses of genius in it, uh, beautiful shots. Maybe they're taking from older films. I don't know. I mean, it's Woody Allen. I mean, you're, tell, you can you can steal from older films as long as you. I just haven't seen it before, but yeah, great, yeah. great stuff. And then uh, there's a great interview with uh, Martin Scorsese. I actually watched recently about that, where I think he's breaking down. A couple of his films. Oh, this through this one reminds me of this movie that I watched when I was a kid. And this, and they showed it like side by side. It's not like a hundred percent the same, but it's like, oh, I see. Like this inspired you to make then this shot. I I saw that interview, and it's 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 very endearing. He's very excited to tell you all about these old movies. I love how excited Martin Scorsese specifically gets yeah. to talk about like old yeah. movies. He actually almost like hates talking about his own stuff. He's just like, let me tell you about Pressburger, and let me tell you about this guy. And you know what? It's great. What? He's always so excited, and it's like. I don't know. His movies are always so like harsh, like, oh, they're gangsters and mm. what? But like his energy in person is always so warm and he's always so like so sweet and so like nerdy. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, I love him. Inverse Woody Allen. Um, <laughs> yeah. I bet you can guess what my most hated joke in this movie is, the one that does not hold up at all. I bet you can guess. I don't know. I fell asleep in between. Tell me, Kyle, which one did you hate the most? So he's in the uh, magazine place buying pornos and he's embarrassed. He's like, oh, I'm a researcher. Uh, I'm almost up to advanced child molestation. That doesn't doesn't really hold up yeah. when, when you know a lot about Woody Allen anymore. I also have like a least favorite joke and a favorite one. And yeah, my yeah. least favorite joke, I don't remember quite what it was, but I wrote down <laughs> towards the end. He, Woody Allen literally makes a joke about a guy having sex with his daughters. And yes. I was like, oh, yeah. well. There we are. Okay. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Woody. I just have some like random notes written down here. It's not the best or anything I've ever seen. I just always like it when there's unique opening titles to a movie. So I liked how it was like going with the music and the different colors and stuff that were going on. I had to rewind one portion of it because he's on the train. I'm like, 
is that Sylvester Stallone? Like, I yeah. had to, like, I was like, was wait a sly. second. Yeah. And it was. He's not credited in the movie like, at all. Like, his name does not show up in the credits or well, anywhere. How did you have but... to rewind it? Oh, it's clearly Rocky. I... 100%. Oh, my God. I'm feeling yeah. so validated right now because I was like, oh. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't rewind it or anything. I was just like, oh, that guy... No, I think he just looks a lot like Sylvester Stallone. Oh, come on. This is this no, this is where it starts because I was that way. I was like, it has to be. But he's not listed on IMDb. He's not listed on Letterboxd. Nobody he's not looks in the like Sylvester Stallone. And I was like, am I just going am I going am I going bananas here? Because oh, it looks so on. much like him. It was also I'm a huge rock first Rocky fanboy. So I mean that's yeah. what well, he looks Rocky's like. Rocky's not for another four years. Yeah, but five that's years, what he looks but, like in Rocky. He doesn't look like how he looks now. I think that's why it was yeah. like but, oh, this was before this was like a few years before rocky that that's not sylvester yeah, probably who cared about just sylvester stallone out. before rocky woody allen didn't didn't well, put him in he the did, credits he didn't, him, he didn't like him on the film he actually tried to kick him off did you hear about this no i didn't read that no woody allen did not think he looked tough enough so he was like i don't want you on this movie and so stallone basically had to plead with him like no 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 i can, I can be tough i can look like a tough guy and then he wrote rocky and then he wrote rocky mm. won an oscar for it dave he there did. you go it's a great movie a movie, imagine an American movie with good guy loses. Huh. Hey, that first movie yeah, is, is good that way. It's like, Genius. It does yeah. not happen very often. No. I just want to also comment on the fact that that crucifixion scene that you keep talking about is the second crucifixion scene we've seen in two weeks. Because <laughs> that also <laughs> happens devil. in The Devils. Yeah. People should watch it. You shouldn't. It will make right. you horrified that you did it. And then after, like this, it will keep coming up because you will never be able to forget the devils there is that like i don't know like torture scene that that is happening where they're making him listen to broadway oh, yeah. songs yeah, right? yeah. And he's like, i just can't listen anymore of naughty marietta anymore <laughs> do either of you know who what naughty marietta is no i thought he said operettas i, I, I thought, I also thought he said operettas but now that you said it i yeah, think sorry. you do know what that is but like I, i'll let you say that so that i don't sound dumb if i don't no no you, no, you go you no, go please <laughs> You brought it up, Jose. I mean, could no, have left it. it, just, it because I don't know if it's like, I'm just like translating it into something that I know in Spanish. This must have been this huge show that influenced all those people on the Sid Caesar show because all of them have used it in their stuff. Nani Marietta is like this operetta. It was made into a movie in like 1935. And it's uh, the song that is in this movie which is called Naughty Naughty Nancy. Oh, no, sorry, it's not. It's the um, Ah, Sweet Mystery of Life or something something like that. Sweet Mystery of Life. It is also in the score to Thoroughly Modern Millie, but it was used in Young Frankenstein. It's used actually consistently through Young Frankenstein every time they're about to have sex. That's the song that they sing. It's in like a few, a few episodes of All in the Family. It's in um, a bunch of other like old sitcoms and stuff. Like for whatever reason, this song is used so often. I went down this huge rabbit hole of like every time this song has shown up in a, in a show. And a lot of it is from those people from like, it's Mel Brooks, it's Carl Reiner, it's this guy. Sounds yeah. like it was like an in-joke in the in the writer's room. Yeah, it must have been a thing that they used to make fun of. And probably because it sounds like, because it has naughty in the title, probably sounds like promiscuous. Yeah, I, I thought I thought they had set up Parada on that. I was like, relatable, I guess. A Parada is kind of hard <laughs> to listen to sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm not Jose, the I'm interested now. fan either. Well, what, what was your interpretation? No, this is going to be very dumb, but um, <laughs> there was this like nursery rhyme kind of thing that I remember we would mm. sing. They would sing to us. We They would make us sing it in like preschool. And it was like about oh, a, wow. girl, a, a girl named Marietta like being bad. 
Oh. And so that was like, I was like, <laughs> you know, that's amazing. And I was like, I, that's probably the same. I was like, it sounds like it could be the same it, thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe it, it, it's, it's too weird a coincidence. Yeah, um, yeah. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't have a deep love of operetta to know much yeah, more about it. So than I was this, like, but... oh, maybe, maybe the song came from there or something. I don't know, but it was kind of weird. The moment that you mm. said that, I had like a flashback. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> um, Again, these are in like really no order here. It's just stuff as I was watching it, I was writing it down. I love the other joke too of them of him accidentally, well, accidentally throwing the drink in the general's face mm. and then smashing the glass. I think that's really done well. <laughs> Um, I love the different. It's like literally straight out of like a Looney Tunes cartoon about him like throwing things and then exploding oh, in his hand. And I yeah. love him throwing the grenade and the pin blowing up in his hand. It's great. <laughs> I think my my favorite joke um, that was like kind of like that that wasn't just like a that it wasn't so much a dialogue joke but like a bit was when when he arrives back to the U.S. pretending to be like the the general and they have the interpreter. And, oh, and he's like, oh, here's yeah. the official interpreter. And he just says things in Spanish. And he just says the, the English thing, but in an accent. Right. I laughed so much about uh, at that. That's good. I, it was just, it was just a great, great joke. Great, a great yeah. bed. And I'm, and I'm assuming he's supposed to look like Castro. Like, I'm assuming that like that's who he's supposed oh, yeah, to be emulating in Which this is case. weird because it's like, oh, but Castro is like Cuban. So like. Right. What are you? Are you in South America, Woody? Or are you in the Caribbean? Are you gonna pick? Right. Which is like my whole thing with the satire in this movie, right? That it's kind of like it. it it's kind of like I was just like thinking of like God. This could be so funny if like they cared about <laughs> the actual politics and not just the aesthetics. Right. I don't give Woody Allen too much credit, but. If he knew who his audience was, nobody would have given a shit. Oh, obviously, because this <laughs> obviously was not meant for Latin American audiences. Yeah. But yeah. I just think it's interesting, for example, that it's like, it's called bananas because it's supposed to, it's obviously like a pun. It's like Play crazy, word, yeah. but it's also supposed to be a banana republic. But like a banana republic is kind of a, a country that is kind of under U.S. corporate control. And that was right. not like a thing at all in the... In the thing, if anything, the U.S. was kind of like very outside of the conflict. So it was kind of like, okay, so you're just using words. <laughs> Throwing These random things, words together it, here. Like yeah. In satire, things must mean things or else you're just doing like a wacky comedy in this specific right. setting. And it's, it's just kind of like interesting because in the first scene, I was like, oh, this is going to be a satire of how um, Americans and Europeans always see Latin America as this like place for political theater. It's kind of like you see it in so many things. You see it in like Evita. You see it in like, mm. um, I don't know. It just Evita is always the one that comes to mind. But it's just kind of like this idea of this unstable places that and like their politics are just theater. And right. it's just kind of like the, the whole thing with the sports commentators commenting on the on the coup on the executions and everything was very funny and i was like oh it's going to be kind of like a satire of that of like american theatricality surrounding latin american politics but then it kind of like dropped that angle and it became kind of an example of what i thought it was satirizing it's like mm, oh yeah. isn't it wacky how these people have like revolutions every month and it's just kind of like okay it was just very weird because, like, the dictatorship was kind of like the rebels were pro United States, right. and like the dictatorship 
was not. And it was just kind of like a weird thing of like most dictatorships in South America Naive. were US backed, right? So it's kind of like yeah. it it seems like you're purposefully missing the points where you could make interesting commentary. Well, I think also the the biggest thing for me is that except for a couple other points I'm gonna bring up here, I don't actually think the satire ever gets better than the first you know, five minutes of this yeah. movie. <laughs> well, I think, are we expecting too much of Woody Allen? I mean, I think we're maybe conflating that he's an intellectual scriptwriter, but he's clearly very naive about politics. So, when we open a scene like that, I don't think he's poking fun at Latin America. I think he's m- making fun of Howard Cosell and, and television. Yeah. And, and it's just a a ruse, right? I, Which is what I, I thought know. like it was going to be, but then everything else becomes like jokes at the expense the of yeah. of like like la- per- yeah. perceptions of Latin America. Yeah. I don't know. Woody Allen makes so such a big deal of being like all like intellectual and is like but he doesn't really back it up with anything. We learned defining uh, hipsters. We're pseudo intellectual, so mm-hmm. you know, he can talk the talk but I, I'd also quip, I suppose, when I live, when I was uh, living in Toronto, I just assumed everything was Toronto and this guy's a New York, New Yorker and, you know, the idea that he would have any kind of empathy or understanding of any other lifestyle. This is not even a well-traveled man in terms of his uh, upbringing I and mean, this guy's like a Manhattanite to then, you know, make a movie about South or Latin America. He's not going to have a broad perspective of it, he's going to see what the American newspapers have been writing about the conditions there, whether he has an opinion about the uh, complexities either way. And, and as we're learning with Hollywood in particular, the tone of the media is controlled heavily by the US government's interests. So, yeah. uh, everything is going to be painted one way and this movie is no exception. I don't think he did any research in it other oh, than to make fun of how yeah, people I, look. I'm, uh, I'm sure he didn't, <laughs> um, but it's, it's just kind of like... Missed opportunity. Yeah, Yeah. it's kind of a missed opportunity. And also, like, satire without intent is so empty. It's so Mm. unsatisfying. Because you're just... Like this movie. Yeah, exactly. You're just watching... Like I said, like, most of the jokes just don't have much to do with the premise. And it's just kind of, like, throwing just random jokes and seeing what sticks. Or you get into this weird, like, uh, preaching to the choir thing. Like... I know it was nominated for like best picture and a lot of people loved it. I hated vice, the movie vice (laughs) so much because it's like, yeah, like I agree with everything you're saying, but you're doing it in such a pretentious way. Like I can't, I can't stand it. Chevy Chase one where he pretend to be, no, what's vice? It's the the one with a Christian Bale. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Oh, it's Christian Bale. Christian Bale who dressed up as Dick Cheney. Yeah. Never watched it. American politics. I don't want to watch anymore. We get enough (laughs) on TV. yeah, I don't want to watch movies. But that, see, Vice, Vice is kind of like a, I feel like that's a lot with like Adam McKay movies, where he wants to be like political. Is like he wants to mm-hmm. eat to he wants his cake and eat it too. Is that how the expression goes? Yep. Okay, it's just kind of like <laughs> not to sound like a foreigner, but um, oh, it's it's kind of like I would put it too. It's kind of like um, oh look, isn't this politics awful? And isn't this thing that happened like awful? But also, I'm going to poke fun of it in this very patronizing way to, so that, to say that it's satire, even though it's like, it's not. You're just, you're just making fun of the way that you're telling this story. Yeah, it felt like a Twitter thread, but as a movie to me. <laughs> and it's just like, ugh, stop it. A, a Twitter thread with a lot of prosthetics. Correct. 
the other two lines I will say, as far as like satire goes and funny lines, it's both I think are on the newscast near the very end, but the opinions can be different, but not too different. Uh, and the one that's like, and the NRA declares death a good thing. And I, yeah, I was like, that's still very yeah, pro, uh, that, that one was very like, oh, that seems like a very recent joke. That reminds me, I need to renew my membership. Did we, did any of you get the uh, musicians with no instruments reference? Is that like a nod to no, fascism? I, well, I, I know why it happened. Oh. Oh, was it that like the instruments didn't arrive on set? Yeah, that's exactly that's what, what it is. That's what I thought. So the, <laughs> the instruments that they were supposed to be playing didn't arrive and they had to film the scene. So they're like, well, I guess you we just won't play anything. Like, <laughs> and that'll be the joke. So they just the ran the, because okay. like part of me was like, oh, is that like the joke that like they don't have instruments, but they're pretending that they do. And like immediately my brain was like, oh, is it like a joke that's like, oh, yeah, like this, this poor country, they can't afford like instruments or something and then i was like and then like my filmmaker kind of brain kicked in and i was like what i think they maybe just just didn't have the instruments and they had to shot shoot the scene because it was kind of like a very yeah. middle of the road joke that i was like yeah it's it's not really funny i don't think but I th- it's not funny at all just yeah. just guessing again this is completely me making this up just how that scene plays out and i know a lot of this was improv and stuff throughout this entire movie but I think the joke actually was that they were supposed to be playing so loudly that you couldn't hear what they were saying at the table because the dialogue at the table, it doesn't matter really all that much. It isn't even all that funny. So I think that's what the joke was going to be, was that the musician got louder and louder and louder. And that that's when he says the button at the end. So can you shut up? That would have been like, oh, my God, like so funny. Um, but with, with them not playing them instruments, I guess it's it's also funny in a different way. It didn't work for me. Yeah, that's why I was like, I didn't laugh when I was like, I don't get what the joke is. And that's when I started thinking. And then I was like, oh, I missed like the first two minutes of this scene thinking about that. (laughs) You didn't miss much. I mean, I know. (laughs) You can see the influence Woody Allen has on like Jerry Seinfeld and all these sort of lived in. uh, Talking about Jerry Seinfeld, the the restaurants in the background in one of the scenes. You can see the Seinfeld restaurant. Really? Yeah. Oh, some of the structures of the gags. Yeah, the same blue orange sign. Whatever the, that the cafe that they always oh, go to. It's right there. I just started watching Seinfeld for the first time because I don't think it was a very big oh. thing. It's on Netflix. Yeah, I, I don't think it was how a very it? big thing here. I I've always known of it, but I, I I just started watching it. And from what I've heard, for younger generations, it's hard to get into because it's very of its time, but also. Literally every plot point in Seinfeld could be solved with a cell phone. And it's, I think, really hard <laughs> well, to lock into you it. You know, that's not like my problem. Like the only problem that I have with it is that I don't get why they keep cutting to his stand up. Oh, uh, that was just his bit because yeah. he built the show from like it, it, it was an interesting way, I think, in the era to differentiate themselves from sitcoms. Because sitcoms were so dry. Well, I think he's also supposed to be commenting on that episode, too. Like, some of his jokes jokes are supposed to comment on it. See, but, like, half the time, they don't have anything to do with what's going on. Like, when they have something to do, it's like, okay, I get it. But, like, other times, it's just, like, did he just, could could he just not fit this into, like, a stand-up routine? And he just needed them to (laughs) go somewhere? Maybe. You haven't got to the end where they show how they pitch the show. (laughs) It, the show it, within the show. it gets very meta yeah okay but, interesting and then what you do have to do then if you ever finish it is you also have to watch the season of kirby enthusiasm which is basically 
the last same. season of Seinfeld. <laughs> I, <laughs> There's I a season think... where it gets so meta of them talking about Seinfeld within the context of Curb Your Enthusiasm while making a Seinfeld reunion that doesn't exist. It gets so God. weird. <laughs> you know that that's why I started watching Seinfeld more than anything, because I watched a few episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm and I was like, I want more context for this. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it does. It, it does make it a little bit. It makes more sense in some of the things he does. I think, uh, I mean, the jokes, the jokes are still well written. There's a reason why Seinfeld has become part of our vernacular. <laughs> There's so many gags and jokes in this show that we use as common language now. And uh, you can't say the same thing about uh, Big Bang Theory. Right? Uh, I don't well, know. we don't, I don't know, know in 20 years. <laughs> don't you use Bazinga in your everyday life? <laughs> no, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> We're done here. Machine has said that we do have to wrap things up, which does mean that we should move on to our segment of Critics' Choice. We, we usually pick two critics of the time. Unfortunately, even though she did do a review for it, I could not actually find the review Pauline Kael made of oh, this movie. Oh, uh, that would have been great. Because I really wanted to read it. I don't know. If she liked them, it would have been like, whatever. But I always... Yeah, I know she likes some of the later Woody Allen movies. I don't know if she liked this one or I not. I just love reading Pauline Kael review like bad reviews like it's just she's so oh, she's always so um <laughs> incisive yeah we've we've learned a lot from her by just reading some of her like hot takes like, I feel on like certain stuff roger ebert's <laughs> negative reviews for example are very emotional and that gets the point across and pauline kales are just very mm -hmm. like intellectually precise so he's like i love those two ends of the spectrum it's kind of like yeah, I love it. I, 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 I'm pitching this to everyone. If you haven't, read her review of the original Straw Dogs movie, which is like, this is America's first fascist film. <laughs> it's like, holy shit. Talking about Roger Ebert, he didn't do like a full review. He would, It was this like article that he wrote, like interviewing Woody Allen and kind of a review at the same time. So here's the section at the beginning that I pulled out. So it says... When the word came through from New York that Woody Allen wanted the Chicago movie critics to see his new movie separately, I figured good old zany Woody Allen was up to his old stuff again. See, the studios have this superstition that critics won't know a comedy is funny unless they see it in a room with at least 500 other people, all laughing their heads off. So they may preview a drama in their screening rooms, but for a comedy, you've got to have a sneak preview in a big theater. But not for Bananas, Woody's new comedy. The word came in from New York that the critics couldn't see it with each other, even much less an audience. So after four years of complaining that the studios were silly and that I knew what I thought was funny, even without those other 500 people, there I was sitting almost all by myself in a screening room with just one other person, Janet Langhart, who does the weather on Channel 12. She laughs sometimes, and I laugh sometimes, and sometimes we both laughed, and the other 498 people floated through the room silent as ghosts. It felt rather weird seeing a comedy almost in silence. But Bananas was funny anyway, so I suppose Woody passed his test. I, I love I love the... She laughs sometimes, I laugh other times. Sometimes <laughs> we laugh together. It's kind of like so like... It sounds like such a lukewarm way to describe a comedy. It's like, I guess we laughed. A uh, more... Uh, I don't know, contemporary review for us from 2020. This is from Michael wow. McNay from The Guardian. Woody Allen is funny by reason of being British Woody accent? Allen. Or What's that? Can you do it in a British accent? It's no, from The Guardian. Can you do no. it as Orson Welles? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. Orson Welles after having three whiskeys is how I want to... <laughs> That's how I want to do it. Woody Allen is funny by reason of being Woody Allen, but that is becoming a decreasingly cashable asset. So... 
Yeah, he, uh, that's he it? did not like the movie okay. very much. That's the only thing I could find for a contemporary reveal of oh. this movie. This does then come uh, bring us to the age-old question we ask every episode. Does this hold up, and is it still culturally relevant? What do you think, Jose? Um, I don't think it's very culturally relevant, because maybe, maybe back in the day, in uh, 71, when people gained, like, learned about, like, po- international politics in a very like Mm. mediated kind of way but now uh, i mean i don't know how informed like american audiences are but like at least as someone who knows what kind of history this is satirizing it's kind of like a very like it's kind of like snl's like political sketches it's like um you're making fun of very surface level I don't know if they're the things you should be making fun of or if you're making fun of them properly. But, uh, okay, I guess you were, you're vaguely aware of what's going on. <laughs> so it's just kind of like that. I don't. You did read a headline and they did say that thing you but just yeah, had them you, say. But yeah. You saw a picture of Castro's beard and thought it looked funny. I'll give mm. you that. It did look funny. Um, but so it's kind of like, I don't know if it's culturally relevant. And as for holding up, I don't know. Some of the jokes hold up. I think that the jokes that didn't work for me are just not good. I don't think it's kind of like an aging thing. So I think comedy wise, I don't think it has aged very poorly. I I will say this. This is, this is not the worst aged comedy that I have watched. That is always like, Oh boy. Especially for (laughs) like a 50 year old uh comedy yeah. it's kind of like a you know what <laughs> props to you for mostly the jokes not involving women have aged properly the, right the, the ones involving women most of them haven't right right yeah there's that, that also that weird subtext is like i hope you're not one of them feminists or so, i forget how he says it. it's like women's lib it or has something. like a, yeah it's it like, has kind right. of like a like the joke seems to be like the women's movement and it's just yeah. kind of like, they're not even good jokes. But uh, <laughs> it's very like, it's very like you're in college and you can't get laid kind of jokes. I think it kind of holds up in terms of like, I just don't think it was very good to begin with. Right. Uh, Dave, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm guessing no and no. Yeah. I mean, I I like... Uh... I'll take some of Jose's points. I, I wrote down notes of gags and jokes that still work, so that's not a zero. And right. um, there are timeless qualities of certain, whether they're slapstick or just neatly uh, timed and uh, executed comedy that, that still would be serviceable today, even though the context has changed. Like, could you mm-hmm. still do uh, a Christian cigarette commercial? Maybe not, but you could still do that bit with whatever is, you know a monolithic thing you want to make fun of today, you know, it could be Disney, right? And it would still be funny. Um, So it holds up uh, in a purely writing sense, but the way it is, um, it's funny. I like, I'm trying my best to separate the jokes from what we believe Woody Allen as a human being, you know, talking about his uh, jokes not holding up because of his relationship with his daughter or his wife now. I mean, I, I don't, I don't actually read this movie that way, to be honest with you. I don't know if I'll come off as a villain, uh, but I still don't find them funny. So I think... I think that's the point. I think they're not even funny jokes and no. they're extra weird because of what happened yeah. decades later. But yeah, it's not... Like, people don't need to watch this. 
No, I, I agree. <laughs> I, like, I don't think this is like, oh, yeah. as far as like culturally relevant, I don't think it's there. Uh, as both of you said, there are certain jokes like this is my little reviews. I like to write on Letterboxd when I watch a movie. The biggest thing is I, like, I, I would probably watch a compilation of my favorite bits of this movie is probably what I would do. I, but I only read the ones he sends me, Jose. So <laughs> aren't I smart, Dave? Look at this. Say, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I'd watch a compilation of like my favorite things, which sure. would run 10 minutes maybe <laughs> from this movie. But I also agree with like because of the fact I did. I legitimately I have to be honest. I did laugh out loud a few times. It did work. It worked on me a few a few places throughout this movie, even you know, though it's not a home run. You know, I I think the most sort of piercing thing about what you just said, and Jose brought it up. This is not a movie. This is an assemblage yeah. of bits. And I agree. so, if this was a YouTube thing where you, yeah, you cut out everything in between, you don't even need context for any of the good jokes. You, you don't. just run them. You could do the cigarette commercial. You don't even need to know that he was uh, playing this role. It wouldn't matter. It would still yeah, be funny. I agree. So. I, I, I like legitimately. You can so, you could pare this down. Like this is yeah, this is what you need to know from bananas, and that's it. <laughs> you yeah, don't it need to know have anything. To be else. Bananas it could just be a random YouTube Go video called Split or something like I, that. I think I re- I remember um in my in a in my directing class once in film school, we we would sometimes just watch a scene from a movie, and you know the t- the like the professor would be like. What, what is this character's goal? What is this scene about, et cetera? You know, like the kind of thing. And I remember we watched the Annie Hall scene where they're cooking lobsters. And, um, and I just remember my, my instructor was like, what is he trying to do? Like, what is, what is his goal in this scene? And I just remember people were like, oh, he's trying to like seduce her. Oh, he's trying to look cool. Oh, he's trying to like, like this kind of like stuff. And then I, I just very, very clearly remember my, my instructor being like, no, he's trying to make her laugh. And then it's like, oh, that just sums up Woody Allen movies a lot. Like, it's just like, hmm. he's just doing stuff that he thinks is funny because he and he's like trying to hit the, those jokes he's just like trying to make you laugh by any means and that's why that's why it's so many bits in this movie that's like very early woody allen it's just kind of like mm. oh if you didn't laugh at that joke there's one coming right up except the ones that take like forever like the the car <laughs> one uh right. that we talked about yeah yeah, that's kind of like very much like the it, it it seems like woody just has some a lot of ideas of how to make you laugh and he'll just assemble them all together in a movie. Um, even if even if they <laughs> don't make a lot of sense put together. <laughs> You're describing Seinfeld, the television show. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, that is what Jose, Dave, and I thought. Uh, what did you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave at VSTheMachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. And if you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go over to our Letterboxd page at letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. Uh, and if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse again, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. And something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Jose, I mean, I always feel bad when we have guests on um, because your rating doesn't matter. But if you were to rate bananas out of five, what would you give it? I, I, I'd give it a, like a two and a half stars. You know, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. solid effort. Some of it works. Still feels very half-baked. Dave? Um, yeah, I'm going to go with a two. 
Um, I think it's salvaged by some of the bits, but overall, maybe like Ebert brought up, it's because I watched this by myself in real life on a computer, but yeah. uh, I could not I could not get the energy rolling through the whole thing and I did a lot of deep sighing and eye rolling. I think for that reason, it, it balances somewhere on the lower end of the half scale. You should, you should uh, pursue fun more, Dave. Yeah, I try, but then I have to uh, do this podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is it. really funny because I'm, like I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm going to probably be the most positive person. So I'm slightly more than Jose because I, I don't know, I just value laughs more. And I always say this too. I probably also give things like half a star more than what they deserve most of the time. Apologies. I'm giving it a three is what I'm going to give this movie. It's middle of the road for me. But that does mean that we average two a 2.5. Dave, we're in this area where we constantly keep coming back to, basically. So that ties with one, two, three, four, five films. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, top to bottom, is this better or worse in the middle of The Andromeda Strain, Straw Dogs, Godzilla vs. Hedera, or The Summer of 42? It's funny. I was thinking of Summer of 42 because they also have a uh, awkward purchasing of prophylactic. prophylactic oh, sorry. I, I missed one. Andromeda Strain, Straw Dogs, The Omega Man, Godzilla vs. Hedera, Summer of 42. But yes, you're right. <laughs> 42-ish. Um, I mean, we were so offended by Straw Dogs, but now that we've watched The Devils, you know, <laughs> should it be higher on the list? <laughs> I don't know. I, I always come to, I think what I value more is like the cultural impact of it. Mm-hmm. I don't really like Straw Dogs all that much, but I would say that it has more cultural impact than what Bananas oh, yeah. does. What's so I would probably put it underneath Straw Dogs and above Omega Man is probably what I would do, but it would be an interesting, yes, I, I'm okay with that. I it would be an interesting thing in our um revisionist episode to have a quick talk of comparing Straw Dogs and the Devils because mm. uh, now that I know that we gave it a 2.5, I just I, it feels a little long, <laughs> even though that was such an offensive movie. I it's incomparable. Or no, it cannot be compared to Bananas. I, the fact that they're <laughs> somehow right. in the same bracket makes me think we're doing something wrong here, Kyle. Well, I don't know. Again, this is going to hit basically the exact middle of our list currently, which is interesting. The exact middle of our list. So entering our list at the 21 position, 21st position is Bananas. All right. Well, let's uh, take a look at what we're reviewing here next week. Let me push this button. Uh, well, Dave, the next week we're going to be watching Clute. 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 Jose, have you ever heard or seen Clute? I've heard of it. I haven't watched it. I believe, uh, what's her name? Jane Fonda won an Oscar for it. Yeah. I think that's the only thing I know I, about this movie. Yeah, and it's like with Roy Schneider and uh, uh, Donald Ooh. Sutherland, right? That sounds right. Which is weird that we've not seen a Don- Donald Sutherland movie yet in the 1971. It seems like he was everywhere in the 1970s, it felt it like. this year off. He was in between productions, maybe. maybe but yeah, maybe. I, do know, I do know it because that was Jane Fonda's Oscar. Uh, so it's been on my list yeah. for a while, but I haven't seen it. I think it's on Criterion. I might give it a watch in time for your episode. Mm-hmm. Jose, thank you so much for joining us here. If people wanted to, you know, see what you're up to follow you online what's the easiest way to do so um you can find me being annoying on twitter at jose m luna yeah okay perfect (laughs) what is we actually have gotten this entire episode without asking this question what is your opinion on bananas like just the fruit i eat them good for potassium (laughs) although it's scary that uh we're relying on one species and they're dying out yeah yeah bananas are great not as great as plantains 
But you can't mm. just eat a plantain. You have to like fry it. No. I had some people from oh I'm gonna don't, don't do this Bolivia. Girl. I'm pretty sure they're originally from Bolivia. Uh cook me plantains once uh with cinnamon and sugar. It was the best thing I've ever had in my entire life. Plantains are so great. Good. Bananas, good. Like not as good as their cousin, <laughs> but they're good. I'm pro banana. I, I am I am pro bananas. <laughs> At least it's not Edmonton, am I right?